This is the Moira Pentecostal Church Podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. I want you to come please with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Just give you a moment to find that and we'll begin reading in a second or two. Luke chapter 14. On Friday the 21st of January 1961, uh, President John F. Kennedy in his inaugural address to the nation, uh, he made this famous often quoted statement. He said, And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Ask not what your country can do for you, but you can do for your country. And those words reverberated all across America and indeed all across the world. And in that very short statement, he tapped into the human psyche, the part which says, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? Of what advantage or benefit will come to me? And although he wanted to lift the people to a different plane and to bring them into a place that they were not at at that particular time, Little did he realize, and I'm sure he didn't, that he was actually using the very thoughts of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever Jesus taught about his kingdom, uh, he taught about it in an entirely different way than the scribes and the Pharisees, because he too wanted to lift us into a different level of thinking when it came to what's in it for me, what do I get out of it? For the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders, for all of that religious establishment, their only concern was what's in it for me. Their position, their status, their standing in the community. They loved the salutations in the marketplace. They loved to pray long prayers in public so that people could see their piety. Whenever they fasted, They made sure everybody knew about it because they went about with big, long faces. And so their dress, their demeanor, their outward appearance, everything about them shouted to their neighbors, look at me, admire me, see my religious life, see my piety. And they wanted a claim and they got a claim. But Jesus said, verily, they have their reward. That's all they would ever get, the praise of men. But there would be no heavenly reward. So the title of the message this morning is, What's in it for me? What do I get out of it? Because that thought actually is not far from any one of us. And I want to show you through Scripture 
in chapter 14 of Luke, here is a situation that Jesus finds himself in, as he did many times. It said, Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It would not be unusual for a Pharisee to invite a rabbi for a meal. His reasoning would be to try to find out what the rabbi believed. And they were wonderful at arguments and debates. Their whole life was debating and arguing, particularly about religious things. But by this time, Jesus was famous in the land. He was very popular. And so they knew exactly who he was. And for them to invite him, that would have been unusual. So that leads us to believe that there was an ulterior motive about this invite. It says he was a ruler of the Pharisees, probably uh, one of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the 70 most religious men in all Israel. And uh, they were Pharisees. Uh, to the nth degree. It also said that they watched him closely. They were constantly keeping their eyes on him, looking out for something he would say or something he would do that they could accuse him, perhaps of blasphemy or of some twisting of Scripture, but some way, somehow, that they could catch him. It said it was on the Sabbath, uh, which would be the most trickiest day of the week. Uh, you have no idea how many rules and regulations that the Pharisees had regarding the Sabbath day. There was some rules that God put on the Sabbath in the Old Testament. But Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had made it uh, such an onerous, burdensome day uh, they had literally hundreds of rules around even eating on the Sabbath day. It was ridiculous. Like to give thanks. Do you give thanks before the meal? Do you give thanks during the meal? Do you give thanks after the meal? Do you give thanks individually for each course? If you were going to drink a cup of wine, do you give thanks before that you drink that or after you drink that or before the next one? I mean, it just became ridiculous. And depending on what school of the Pharisees you belong to, then they had their own different rules. And all of this was supposed to hedge in uh, the Lord's command on the Sabbath. But in fact, it made it so burdensome that people began to hate it. And Jesus despised those rules of men. Not only that, but we see that they had a man there who had dropsy, a terrible debilitating disease. And even though the Pharisees, even in their own writings, the rabbinical writings, were to, uh, to bless and look after the poor, but in practice they never did that. They had no time for the poor, they had no time for the sick. And so the fact that there's one invited here, and only one, shows us that they were setting a trap for Jesus because they knew the compassion of the Lord. By this time, they had known much about him. 
They had also known that he had broken the Sabbath, their rules of the Sabbath, many, many times. You remember the little woman who was bowed over for 18 years, lo, whom Satan has bound these 18 years, and Jesus says, woman, you're loose. That little woman, he healed her on the Sabbath day. Remember the man who was in the, the synagogue, who was full of demonic spirits, who cried out, and Jesus uh, released him from those evil spirits, was on the Sabbath day. You remember... Uh, how that Jesus and his disciples was going through a cornfield and uh, they were hungry and some of the disciples took some of those grains of corn they rubbed it in their hand and ate it and the Pharisees thought that was a disgrace you're breaking the Sabbath and, uh, and Jesus says well uh, do you not remember how David and his people when they were hungry they, <laughs> they would enter the tabernacle and ate the showbread that the priests weren't even to eat and that's when he says man was made or Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But he also healed a man with a watered hand uh, on the Sabbath day also. And uh, if I can just read this, because there's something similar here. In Luke chapter 6, verse 6, Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man there whose right hand was withered, so the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely. They did that a lot whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise, stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so Jesus, sitting there, knew what they were planning, knew that they had planted this man, knowing that they were expecting something to be said or to be done that they could find an opportunity to accuse him. And so he it says in verse 3, And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Jesus answering, it doesn't tell us what questions he was being asked. It might have been, well, what do you believe about the Sabbath? It might have been, what rabbi did you, were you trained under? Knowing that he wasn't trained under any rabbi. <laughs> so they could have been asked him all kinds of awkward questions designed to trip him up. Or it could be, because it doesn't tell us what questions were asked, it could be that he was answering the very thoughts and intentions of their hearts, saying he knows all things. So Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. The lawyers, by the way, were those who knew the very minutiae of the law, every jot and tittle of the law. So he answered the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the answer to that is, yes, absolutely. Uh, God's law regarding the Sabbath put no prohibition on healing someone on the Sabbath or doing good to someone on the Sabbath. But it was all these external laws that these men had put around the Sabbath that would forbid that because that would constitute work in their mind. And so it said they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. 
Then he answered them, saying, and this is to show them the hypocrisy, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Notice he said, which of you having an ox or a donkey who's fallen in the pit would not immediately pull him out? In other words, they wouldn't wait till the end of the Sabbath day. They would go immediately. Why? Because it's within their interest. It's the what's in it for me mentality. As far as the man with the drops is concerned, there was nothing in it for them at all. They cared nothing for this man with the dropsy. They only had him there as bait to try to trap Jesus in their snare. That's the only reason. But when it came to one of their donkeys or their oxen, then that was to their advantage. Then they would care about that because that's to their cost. That's what's in it for me. What's to my advantage? And Jesus is showing them here the hypocrisy of their hearts that they cared absolutely nothing for this man. Even the man who was healed in the synagogue, they were filled with rage that Jesus healed a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. But when it came to a donkey or an ox that belonged to them, they would not even wait to the end of the Sabbath. They would go immediately because it belonged to them. It was to their advantage. Are you getting the picture? And they could not answer him regarding these things. And so he told a parable to those who were invited. So he's taking this to another level. When he noted how they chose the best places... Whenever uh, this was a part of the, the culture, particularly in that day, but actually <coughs> it's still with us today to some degree or other. It, it, Jesus, I'm, I'm sure, would have went to that uh, supper early and he'd watch those coming in who were invited. And if this was a member of the Sanhedrin, you can be sure that he would only be inviting uh, those whom he thought would be advantage to him because at some point he hoped they would invite him. And, uh, and so there'd be other members of the Sanhedrin, there'd be other Pharisees who wouldn't be in the Sanhedrin, but who would be well up there. This would be his A-list. They would have rich neighbors. They would civic leaders out of the, out of the city would come. And uh, so there'd be a, quite a crowd, but there'd be a select crowd. The only one out of place was that poor man with the dropsy who was bait for Jesus. And, uh, but Jesus would notice how when they would come in, uh, how they would be eyeing out the whole place to see where the host would be because they would want to get close to the host and uh, they would want their positions, they'd want their status to be seen. And the closer you get to the host, the greater your status would be. And so he would notice them how they'd be eyeing up the seating arrangements and, and the elbows would be at the ready uh, to make a charge to get close to the host. And if it wasn't so serious, it would be funny actually to be watching that. So he told them a parable to those who were invited, how I know that they chose the best places, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, this wasn't a wedding feast, but he's using this as an example. When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you 
be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And when you begin with shame to take the lowest place, but when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm sure that every one of us at some point or other has been invited to a wedding. And uh, after the wedding ceremony, we all make our way uh, as invited guests to the reception, which would usually be late afternoon or in the evening. And whenever you get there, uh, the bridal party is getting loads more photographs taken, so you have a few hours to spare, and you have your coffee or whatever, and you wait. And then comes a time uh, whenever the reception is ready. And typically, the bride and the groom would stand just outside the door of the reception room, and we would all file past, and we would wish them God's blessing and all the best and so forth. And, uh, but either just before we would go into that room or just after we would go in, we would look for that, uh, that board with the seating arrangements. And the first thing you would look for is your name to see which table you're at. And so you scan your eye down all those names. Ah, I'm at table five. Oh, that's a good table. That's kind of front and center because there's the, there's the top table. That's the bridal. That's the bride and groom and their parents and the groomsman, the best man, and the bridesmaids and the maid of honor and so forth. That whole table, that's the top table. But table five, that's a bit front and center. So you're sitting there, you've, you've got good view of the top table. So that's number five. That's pretty good. And then the next thing you look for, and you're going to have to be honest about this, the next thing you look for is, I know I'm on table five, but who else is on that table? Eh? Isn't that what you look to see? Who else is on table five with me? Now, the bride and groom will usually have worked this out and have spent maybe a few agonizing hours to try to match people up at the right table. Now, if it, maybe if it's a group from the same church, well, we'll lump them together because they all know each other and they can have a bit of crack. Maybe if it's a group of relatives, maybe they lump them together. But maybe there's a few that's not familiar with either group, and well, where do you put them? And then there's, uh, there's wee Uncle Jimmy. And wee Uncle Jimmy could tuck the leg of a stool. And he's a bit deaf as wee Uncle Jimmy, so while the speeches are being made, made he's still talking. When the toast of the bride's been made, he's still talking. In fact, he talks the whole time. He never shuts up. And then there's wee Aunt Sadie. Well, wee Aunt Sadie, you never know what she's going to say. She could just embarrass everybody at the table. And so there's all this stuff going on. Who is at my table? Who's sitting beside me? Oh, there's so-and-so. Oh, that's nice. I hope, I hope he's sitting beside me because we'll have a good yarn if he is. And the idea is, you're thinking, and I'm thinking, what's in this for me? How do I feel about this? How will my day go here? What will the crack be like at my table? You're not thinking of our table, you're thinking of my table. <laughs> and so, Jesus is using this as an example here of a wedding feast. 
Or somebody goes in and again they're scanning and looking to see how close can we get to the bride and the groom? In those days, maybe there wasn't any formal placements of seats at the wedding feast. You just had to get in there as quick as you can and get as close as you can. And I could imagine there'd be a bit of shoving and pushing going on. But then the embarrassment, the embarrassment may be, he said, if the groom would come and say, look, you're sitting in the wrong place. You're going to have to go right to the back. That seat right at the very back. And the person who's sitting in that seat is going to have to come and sit in this seat. And so Jesus is trying to get through to them. This business of what's in it for me has got to stop. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to him, so he's getting more personal now. He's not just talking to the crowd, he's talking to the Pharisee. Then he said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, that you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now let me say what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that every time you or I make a meal, invite people to our home, that we're not to invite our friends or family or loved ones or neighbors, that we're to go out and get total strangers and the poor and the people on the streets and invite them. And well, if you want to do that, that's fine. But that's not what he was saying to us. He's saying that to him. He wasn't even saying that to the rest of the But to this man, because he was the one who invited, and he was the one who was inviting for an ulterior, ulterior motive. He was the one who was inviting the rich, friends, family, other ones who he knew would certainly invite him back. And there would maybe be some other members of the Sanhedrin. He's never been in their eyes, and he was hoping they would invite him back. So all his motive is completely and utterly wrong. Although it would do no harm, I suppose. Certainly not. If we were, in, whenever we make our invitations, that we invite somebody <laughs> someday, or take somebody out for a meal, uh, that we have no ulterior motive other than just to be a blessing. Uh, we're not looking for them to invite us back. We're not doing it for a comeback, we're not doing it for what's in it for me, we're doing it for what's in it for them. How can we bless that person? And so he said, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, in Mark chapter 10, That's the Pharisees, that's the scribes, that's their religious establishment. But what about us? Do we think this way? What about the Lord's disciples who walked with him for three years? Who were close to him? Who you would think knew his heart? But in verse 35 of Mark 10, 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to know, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. In Matthew chapter 20, which you don't need to turn to, you'll find that James and John's mother was involved in this request. And it looks like probably she was the one who put them up to it. She wanted her two boys to have the best thrones in the kingdom, the places of privilege and position, one at the right hand, one at the left. You could not get any closer than that. Sure you couldn't. So here they are, involved in kingdom business, doing kingdom work with the king of the kingdom. But when his kingdom would come in full manifestation, which they thought and believed was going to come shortly on earth, they were thinking of a physical material kingdom. Then they wanted to make sure, what's in it for me? What do we get out of this? We would like thrones, one on your right hand and one on your left. And the mother seemed to be pushing them. <coughs> so they said, grant that we may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your glory, when your kingdom fully comes. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink with the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able so Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And then the ten heard it, and they began to be greatly displeased with James and John, probably because they would have wanted to say that first. They were probably waiting for an opportune time. Only James and John jumped in ahead of them. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom uh, for many. And so the whole idea of this business of what's in it for me is never very far from any of us. In fact, we can find out very soon that Jesus, knowing the very desires of our heart, knowing what we want, what we need, what we're looking for, as well able to bless us and take care of us. And whenever you follow the Lord and whenever you serve the Lord, believe me, there will be something in it for you. But that should not be our primary motivation for service or for following Christ. But having followed Christ and having served Christ, you're going to find that God will make sure that there's plenty in it for you. Plenty 
in Matthew chapter 19. You remember last Sunday morning, we talked about the rich young ruler that came to Christ. And how Jesus got right to the very root of his problem was because he was trusting in his riches. And Jesus uh, said to the disciples whenever he left, verse 22, when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus says, give all that you have to the poor and come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. But the young man heard that the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And we explained why they were greatly astonished last week. I won't go into that. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men it is impossible, with God all things are possible. But notice this. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Therefore, what's in it for me? And it was true. They had left all to follow Jesus. No question about that. We see it written in the Bible. But in the back of his mind... It shows you that's what he was thinking. Yes, I have left all. I have made a great sacrifice. So what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? That's what he was thinking. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you have followed me, will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's specifically at that point speaking to his personal disciples, the ones closest to him, the ones who would be his apostles. So he says, there's already 12 thrones prepared for you. So you see, there is something in it for you, but that should not be your primary motive in serving me. But know that if you do serve me and you do follow me, and you do love me and you do trust me, I'll make sure there's something in it for you. Then he goes on, and everyone, so this is us, everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Rachel, there's a wee verse for you, dear. Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, and that's not easy. Our wife, our children, our lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. For many who are first will be last, and the last first. So you see, there is something in it for every single one of us. All of us, in one way or another, to one degree or another, have made a sacrifice to be a follower of Christ. And our primary motive was not, well, what's in it for me? Our primary motive was, I want to follow Jesus. But there's something great in it for you. There's a reward for the righteous. 
There's a blessing and favor for those who follow the master. So we'll not be denied. We'll not be shortchanged. Everything that God has planned for us, both now in this life and in the life to come, is great. And it's wonderful. And it's beyond our imagination in the life to come. Second, you don't turn to the Second Timothy 4 8. Paul talks about a crown of righteousness for all those who love his appearing and live their lives in the light of his appearing. There's a crown of righteousness. First Peter 5 and 4, there's a crown of glory. It's a shepherd's crown for those who feed the flock. There is the imperishable crown Paul spoke about, the incorruptible crown, 1 Corinthians 9.25, for those who keep control of their fleshly desires to keep their body under. James 1 and 12, there's a crown of life for all those who endure tribulation or persecution for his name's sake, even for those who give their lives even unto death. There's a crown of life. There's a crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. That's the soul winner's crown. Paul said to those Thessalonians, are you not my crown of rejoicing? Soul winner's crown. So you see, our primary reason for being a follower of Christ is not what's in it for me. But what's in it for Christ? What's in it for his kingdom? What's in it for others? But, but there is something in it for us. And God will make sure that every single one of you will receive his reward. What better reward could you have than standing before the Lord on that day and him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Hmm? What better reward could there be than that? And that's the head of everyone who truly and honestly follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is teaching these Pharisees, and he's teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us, ask not what you can do for me, but ask what can I do for you? And the rewards will be great, and you'll be blessed beyond measure. Let's pray. Take a moment to think of every blessing. Think of the blessings that God has given you even in this life. Remember the little song, Count Your Many Blessings? Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And sometimes we have to stop and just think, Lord, you have blessed my life in so many ways. Help me not to be forgetful or ungrateful, but to look to you with thanksgiving in my heart and say, thank you, Lord, for every blessing, for every grace you bestowed, for every gift that you gave, for every supply that came my way. I thank you, Lord. 
Lord, there are too many to count. Lord, those of us who have walked with you for many years, it's beyond counting. And yet they keep coming. Every day your faithfulness and your mercy is great. Then, Lord, we look ahead to that day in your glory. Whenever we stand before your throne, receive rewards for deeds done in the body, we thank you, Lord. We bless you for every reward that you have planned for each of us. And so, Lord, we love you, we follow you, we serve you with all of our hearts. Help us to try to be a greater blessing to your kingdom, knowing, Lord, that you have plans for us which are good and not for evil. Give us that hope in the future. So we give you thanks. Bless you for who you are, for all that you've done, for all that you're doing, for all that you will yet do. Lord, we're in safe hands today. We go into a future, Lord, that is bright as the promises of God. We go into a future, Lord, where you have already planned good things for your children. So we thank you for them. We bless you, Lord. Help us to walk every single day of our lives with thanksgiving in our hearts. In the name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.